The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right, we welcome you tonight to a service. Glad to see you out there and out there on the computer. All right, let's turn our Bibles to uh, a new book that we haven't read together before, uh, and that is Isaiah. You ready to uh, begin a trek through the prophet? This is going to take us a while, but we're going to do it. So, I don't think I'm going to need this, so I'm just going to set it aside. There you go. Sunday evening reading bookmark. That's good. So, Isaiah is going to take up our reading. And we only have a very few books left in the Bible to read. Since we began, do you remember when we began reading the Scriptures together? We began reading Romans in 2008. And uh, we were just doing it on Sunday evenings. And then I decided to start doing chapter reading on Sunday mornings as well. So, in uh, maybe 14 years, we'll have read the whole, the whole Bible. Is that is that possible? And somebody can figure that out, please. 11, 12, 11 or some hundred chapters in the Bible. So just divide it up and see what you come up with. But it was for a long time, only once, once a Sunday. Um, and uh, there are a couple of long prophets yet to go. Um, yeah, Song of Solomon, I may uh, not do that book. Or we may do it in a context of a couple's uh, class or something like that. <laughs> so... Uh, okay, all right, Isaiah, Isaiah. these major prophets are always a conundrum because, I mean, if you just kind of leaf through your Bible and find out, I mean, just include, you know, Daniel here, that much of your Bible is the prophets. These books are not to be forgotten, but we just don't pay much attention to them. And I think to our theological uh what do I want to say? Our detriment, our theological immaturity. This, this stuff here would, would inform and I think would solve so much of theological confusion. In fact, I've been jotting down notes in an outline uh, for another book idea I have. Someday I want to write a book, okay? A theology book. And uh, this one is called Kingdom Confusion. I want to clear up the confusion about the kingdom of God. And this book in Isaiah will help a lot of people to do that if they realize all that's in there. I mean, somebody talks about what is the kingdom of God as if it's some new concept that appeared in Matthew chapter 3 or Matthew chapter 1. Not even close. I mean, there are hundreds of pages of revelation about this concept in the Old Testament and we just don't read our Bible. So... It behooves us to pay good and close attention to this. Now, there is a lot of negative you know, kind of stuff, I call it here, judgment and things. So we have to slog through that and fit it all together. The book of Isaiah, chapter 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. What parent does not fear or know that feeling? Rebellious children. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, 
My people do not consider. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores that have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been made like Gomorrah. One of the crucial things about Isaiah and these prophets is that you will see Paul often referring to them. He just knew them in his head, in his heart. And when he was writing and the concept came that was you know, under the inspiration of God's Spirit that needed to be communicated in words that God had already revealed, he just repeated, wrote it out. And there it is that we see that in Romans. Verse number 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now notice Sodom and Gomorrah here don't refer to literal Sodom and literal Gomorrah. They refer to Israel under those headings because they're so wicked. Friends, I think we could pretty much just put that label on the good old United States of America, couldn't we? Sodom and Gomorrah. What, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wow. God turns His eyes away from the wicked, but His eyes are over the righteous and His ears are open to their prayers, are they not? Verse 16, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before My eyes, Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel... You shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a harlot. It was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. 
They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. Therefore, the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will rid myself of my adversaries and take vengeance on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away all your alloy. I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness. The destruction of transgressors and of sinners shall be together. And those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the terebinth trees which you have desired. And you shall be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen. These are speaking about idolatry. For you shall be as a terebinth whose leaf fades and as a garden that has no water. The strong shall be as tinder and the work of it as a spark. Both will burn together and no one will quench them. Chapter 1 here is a microcosm of the book. It shows you kind of a bouncing back and forth between condemnation for wickedness and then mentions of salvation. A couple of cycles here almost in that way. It's amazing that God would take back a nation which has been so stubborn and crooked. But this is what God promises to do. Verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed with justice. We are squarely in the camp of those who believe that there will be not only a national salvation for Jews in the end time, there will be a national restoration in Zion. That is clearly taught in Scripture. And I would dare say, if you deny that, then you are, and and I'm telling you, probably... 75% or more of Christian people, teachers, deny that. Reformed folks and amillennialists, postmillennialists deny this truth, then they are undercutting their own confidence in salvation because if God doesn't keep His promises to the elect nation, no reason that He should keep His promises to His elect people in this age. But we know that's foolishness because God not only keeps His promises to the elect of this age, He will also do so to the elect of the nation of Israel and that entire nation. As Romans 11 says, we'll come to Him in salvation and the Deliverer will come out of Zion and He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, Romans 11, 25-27. And so all Israel will be saved. That will be the day. We're not there yet, but we will see it by and by. Amen. Trust God will bless that reading to you. And uh, speaking of uh, evening reading bookmarks, I better uh, move mine from, no, not from Deuteronomy, from 2 Kings. There we go. So now we're ready to go. Okay. All right, I mentioned this morning that I was going to be speaking about the doctrine of uh, self-deception. And ever since I read a paper on this subject a number of, well, probably years ago now, and I have it still uh, sitting, not from all those years, but I brought it back on my computer screen. I intend to go back and read it quite carefully. But I wanted to say, okay, I've read that paper some years ago. I'm going to go dig into the Scriptures and find out what I find on the subject. Then I'm going to read the paper again. And then I'm going to you know, make additions and, and uh, modifications and so on to this doctrine of self-deception. 
One writer says this about self-deception. Self-deception is an insidious condition. You will never meet a person who knows he is self-deceived. You ever thought of that? You'll never know a person who thinks he's self-deceived. By definition, those ensnared are completely unaware that they are self-deceived. John Calvin wrote these words, not that I embrace all of his theology. He had a lot of problems in practice. Be aware of that. He said this, The human heart has so many crannies where vanity hides, so many holes where falsehood lurks, is so decked out with deceiving hypocrisy that it often dupes itself. And finally, the go-to quotable pastor, C.H. Spurgeon, Beware of no man more than of yourself. We carry our worst enemies within us. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9, remember, you know that verse, don't you? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Verse 10 says, Oh, I the Lord know. I, I try the reins. I know the heart. I know the mind. God does, but we don't. And I want you to notice that that verse is not just talking about the heart being deceitful towards outsiders, as if it speaks lies to deceive others. It actually generates lies that deceive yourself. And it blinds you to its own depravity, its own sinfulness. And this is a subject which, if you can get a hold of it, I think it really helps you to know about the nature of man. Man is not good. Man is a sinner. And that's the case for every human being on the face of the planet. And if you really get a hold of that, then you can discern and see through a lot of garbage that goes on out there in the world because you just know it's coming from depraved hearts. There's got to be something bad there, you know, uh, in a lot of what's going on out there that you see in the news and so on. So, over 75 times the Bible uses the word deceive, about 10 times the noun deception. And many other passages of Scripture talk about the idea of deception. I've gone over this material uh, already on Wednesday. I'm just reviewing. The Bible starts out with deception and ends with deception. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, the woman says, when God questions her about her uh, fault, she says, uh, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Apostle Paul tells us that she was not Lying about that because it was it was uh, you know Adam first formed then Eve and Eve being deceived was in the transgression First Timothy chapter two, so that's a clear example. The deception itself happened when the serpent tried to get Eve to think differently about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil than how God instructed Adam and Eve to think about it, and so she began to see it in a different light, and she deceived herself. She thought that it was good. To make one wise, and in fact, it was evil. So she, but she knew what God said. So she knew something. She believed something to be true. Then she began to believe that she didn't believe that that was true. She believed the opposite was true. And that is an example of self-deception. In Revelation chapter 20, the, the Bible at the end also mentions deception. It says that the uh, serpent... That great dragon of old, Satan, will be cast into an abyss, uh, a, a pit, 
and locked up there for a thousand years so that he cannot do what? Deceive the nations. And then it says he will be loosed from there for a time and he will go forth and deceive the nations one last time. A very sad, sad testimony after a thousand years of perfect divine governance, saints reigning with Christ, every benefit imaginable to humanity and the human heart will yet be rebellious against its God and against His Christ. And so the Bible begins and ends with the deception. Actually, really begins with really begins with creation and ends with new creation. But uh, really, the whole of human history has been one of deception. Sometimes deception comes from the outside. So somebody's, you know, that's deceived is innocently, you know, tricked. You know, somebody has done such a good job of deceiving them that they believe something that's wrong, and until later they find out that that person was lying to them. But many times the person being deceived is complicit in the deception. And this is where self-deception comes into play. Uh, and this is a big reason why deception works because of the participation to a greater or lesser degree of the person who is being deceived. We're thinking about self-deception tonight. And I want you to think deeply about it because you are not able to tell me that you've never experienced this or you never will or it's never a danger. Every last one of us has this potential all the time. And whether we're believers or unbelievers, the remaining sin tries to deceive us. Satan tries to deceive us. The world tries to deceive us. Unbelievers, of course, are fully in the deception camp. Their minds are darkened. They think they're wise, but they're actually not wise. You see, they're thinking totally opposite of what reality is. Is. And so I've been interested in the notion of how do you become entangled in deception such that you deceive yourself. We kind of understand intuitively that self-deception is a thing, uh, but to try to explain it is not so easy. I mean, could you explain to me what it is and how it works? Well, that's what I'm working to try to do for you, and I'm not there yet fully. But it's, 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 it's very strange, it's paradoxical, it's enigmatic because it says that somebody believes something and it says they don't believe that thing. They believe something else that's contrary to it. So the, the prime example, if you turn your Bibles to Romans 1, I'll just take this up right now, is in, is in Romans 1. <clears throat> and this is not only uh, helpful for us as um, believers to notice about ourselves and to fight against it. But it's also helpful for us in our evangelism and in our defense of the faith. Because you are dealing with people who, as unsaved, maybe the nicest quote-unquote people, but in some measure, without the Gospel, they are deceived they have been deceived and they're thinking incorrectly about things. Among the ways they do that is given to us in Romans 1. The Bible tells us that, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What are these people doing? They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So this is, it's saying that there's something obvious that needs to be known, that is known. 
It says, for, explaining that, since the creation of the world, from the very beginning, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. So by the means of the creation itself, we understand God's eternal power and, it says in my translation, Godhead, which really you could translate as what word? Anybody have an idea? It is speaking of the Trinity, but actually the Trinity is not revealed in nature, right? The word, do you have a footnote there in your Bible? Anybody? Call it out. Deity. That's what Godhead means. Um, remember how I used the word womanness this morning? This is the word Godness. You know from nature his eternal power and Godness. What is, what is the noun that? Ends with the word N-E-S-S. Come on, Jackson, tell us. What does that mean? Have you learned that yet? You'll come, you'll come to that many a time in your schooling, I'm sure. The state of something. The state of being of something. So, the fact that He is eternally powerful and His deity is clear. Understood by means of the things that are created so that they are without excuse. Every human being knows this in some fashion inside of their those deep crannies and, and crevices of their heart. Because, verse 21 says, although they knew God, here it is, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and so on. He gives them up, hands them over, delivers them over. Three times that idea is used here because they have been deceived and they have deceived themselves. Now, Just let me call that detail out as we go through and look at this. People suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What does it mean to suppress? They hinder it. They restrain it. They cause it to be held back from view or practice. They sit on it. They smash it. They hide it. This is the natural tendency of people. Every human being has a suppression instinct. Now, suppression instinct is great when it comes to fire, suppress fire, you know, but it's not good when it comes to suppressing truth. It is, 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 and, and the suppression instinct is the biggest in areas that are closest to God or morality. This is an interesting concept that I learned in one of my early classes from Dr. McCune, who is now with the Lord and a blessed teacher of the Word of God. At the seminary, and he he said, you know, people don't generally suppress truths like two plus two equals four. Mathematics, basic math, is kind of at a level where the suppression level is not bad. Oh yeah, with Common Core new math, right? I saw that. Right, two plus two is five. Okay, no, that that will eat, and that that actually is a that actually is a demonstration in some sense of the of the suppression level moving uh, down from higher level items like moral issues and, and, and the belief in God all the way down to very simple issues. And it's a very strange kind of thing. But remember, we're dealing with people who profess to be wise, but they are actually 
fools. So, shall we expect any better? No. You can't blame, in a sense, blame the blind man for being blind. He is blind, you know. He's, 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 he's lost and he needs to be enlightened in the Gospel. But anyway, that's suppression. Now, so, it's, 2 plus 2 is 4 is a very mild and harmless truth. But denying life in the womb or marriage between a man and a woman or even marriage at all serves a deep motivation for pleasure and for convenience. You see that? You can't get anything out of 2 plus 2 is 4 or by denying that. Okay? But you do get something, I say get something, by philosophically denying marriage or purity before marriage or uh, you know, abortion, things like that, and, and saying that oh, all that stuff is okay when it's in fact not okay. This is why such efforts are made to justify sexual immorality and abortion. Immorality is self-seeking pleasure and abortion is in consequence a necessary ritual to sacrifice the child for the convenience of the fornicators. Okay, Make sure you understand what I'm saying. In their mindset, they're seeking pleasure for themselves in immorality. And if that has a consequence of the production of a child, they've got to remove the child from the, the picture so that they will not be inconvenienced by that, so that their, their immorality will not be consequential, that it will not um, cause them a problem. And so they are willing, very willing, to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The fact of the matter is, Abortion is murder. And, and that's, that's just one area. Okay, We use that area because I think it's like the most obvious, even though people deny, deny, deny. Why do they deny? Because they're self-deceived. And it's a sad situation that they cannot see the obvious. The obvious. Now we're not arguing about whether you know, we do abortion in certain limited cases. Now it's can we do it all the way up to the moment. Nine months after conception, right before birth, and even now, after. Can you believe that the national conversation has descended to such a self-deceived, awful, wicked, Sodom and Gomorrah type of level? That's what's happened. The Bible's true, isn't it? It tells us all of this in advance. So, the means, now this, that's what suppression is, that's what it looks like. What's the means by which they do that? They attack the truth head-on in order to suppress it. This is what it means to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Okay, They're unrighteously attacking the truth by doing what it prohibits. Doing what it prohibits. God you know, says no images, no idols. What do they do? They build all these idols in the form of four-footed beasts and creeping things and bugs and humans and everything else. That's their gods, so they think. Evil deeds and philosophies abound in order to suppress the truth. They do it in their actions. They do it on a global scale. It is done corporately by groups of people, this suppression of truth. It is done by governments. It is done by media. This suppression is done by Hollywood television schools and colleges 24-7. They are suppressing the truth. That's corporately, but suppression is also an individual thing. Done in the individual's spirit and mind. The person convinces himself that what he believes, 
the truth is not actually truth. In this sense, this is exactly what we're studying here, self-deception. They know God, but they have denied Him by suppressing that truth in their unrighteousness. This self-convincing element is itself unrighteous and leads the person to gather around with other people of like mind on whatever their pet issues are so that they can revel in their self-deceptions and not have to deal with other people who press them about the underpinnings of their notions. This is a sad thing. I mean, you would think, we would think as believers, if uh, you know a group of people who believe in you know, gay marriage or, or transgender or any of those issues, you know, wanted to kind of, what do you, what can I say? Like, make sure that their view is good and sound and correct. They might take some outside um, criticism or outside evaluation or at least invite, say, me to talk to them about these things. But they don't want to do that. They want to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, the above is true. Uh, in general, but Paul zooms in on a particular truth that suffers from this suppression instinct. The truth that is suppressed is the truth about God. And what is that truth? Two things. Well, maybe you could say even three. His existence, first of all, his power, and his deity. And perhaps you could put existence under the heading of deity because a God is not a God if He doesn't exist. Right? But if we call it out, it is in a separate heading. You know, we can say He exists, He has certain characteristics, and He's shown us this. He's made this evident to all of humanity. The fact that He possesses eternal power and deity, or some say divinity, but deity perhaps is a better word, are clearly understood through the means of the things that were created. The truth of God, His power and deity, are told in the skies and the heavens above. They're told in the earth and the oceans beneath. They're told in the complexity and diversity of creation, the inner working of all creation, and the work of the conscience in the human nature. All of that screams God. Consequently, since every person knows by observation these things and the correlated facts about God, they are, the Bible says, end of verse 20, without excuse. Every single person is without excuse, even if they've never heard the Gospel before. They don't have to hear a a word about Jesus. They are without excuse. The remotest tribe who has fallen into idol Worship and fetishes and fear of their ancestors is without excuse. Sadly, sadly, I'm not saying that in reveling or anything. That's awful. But they have been left in their, in their darkness and there's only one way that they're going to find out about the way of salvation. That is, we send a missionary to them, learn their language, write the Bible to them, preach to them, get them to understand the Gospel. And you know what? Not all of them are going to accept the Gospel of Christ, most probably, because uh, you know we see it the same here. With access to all that we have, people still reject because of why? They want to suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. They like their unrighteousness. Every person does. All over the world. Okay? So, uh, in, in 
most people and, and all in our natural pre-saved state believe that they don't believe that truth. The truth is God exists and He's eternally powerful and He's deity. Everybody knows that, but they've convinced themselves they don't know that. That is self-deception. How does that work? How is it that you can know something and then believe that you don't know it? Or believe that the opposite is true? That's the issue of self-deception. I think, I think in a way that if the answer is going to come very, boil down to a very simple thing. This is what sin does to a person. It darkens their minds so that they cannot understand and see the truth and they're, 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 they need light in order to see that. Once the light switch is turned on and the light bulbs are working, obviously, then you can see when God turns that light on in illumination, that's what we call illumination, then somebody can see, oh, I see what I have not been seeing before. There are a lot of you know, creepy crawlies in my life that need to go away. And what happens when the light turns on? That's right, yeah. But men love darkness rather than light, don't they? Because their deeds are evil. So, yeah, that, that's uh, the need for the light to go on. So, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness with the motivation that it is inconvenient to their ongoing pleasure to acknowledge that truth. I mean, if they acknowledge that God is and that He has certain you know, moral standards for them, then they will have to stop their behavior. Otherwise, they'll have a lot of brain problems because they'll be knowing that God exists and doesn't want them to do what they're doing, but they'll be trying to do it. And this is why they suppress that truth because it's more convenient for their thinking. Verse 21 reiterates that although people knew God, and that is historically and presently as well, they did and continue to not honor Him as God. This means very plainly that they knew God, but they rejected Him. See that? They knew God, but they lied to themselves that they do not know God. So, that's what self-deception is. Lying to yourself. We know this is a thing, don't we? Self-deception, but it's hard to kind of grasp how it can work. Otherwise, if they knew God, how could they not honor Him? with the honor that He deserves. Well, because they've crammed that truth away into a closet and they forgot that they even have it. The very definition of God and the automatic response uh, to God uh, in, in someone who acknowledges Him would be to be thankful, to live the life that He expects you to live, at least roughly, you know, generally, but they don't do that. Humanity does not honor or thank God this rejection has itself led to a consequence. What is that consequence? The darkened mind. I just cannot imagine when Adam and Eve sinned what their minds must have felt like. Their minds were enlightened nearly perfectly, you could say, in the garden before sin. They were not infinite minds. They were finite still. But very, very functioning very fine. And as soon as they ate, they must have been plunged into a kind of darkness that they could not express and understand and grasp. And thus, the rest of us, we've been dropped into this world already in that state. We've never known any other state until we get saved. And then our, our, the cloud kind of 
you know, lifts off and we can see. You know, it's, it's, like, it's like when a terrible headache goes away. And you just feel like, wow, I'm alive. <laughs> I am alive. Yeah. So, darkened minds is the consequence of this self-deception. They became fools because they did no longer acknowledge God. The fool, the Bible says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 14.1, Psalm 53.1 say, say the same thing. Without the fear of the Lord, Proverbs 9.10 says there is no what? Wisdom. Without the fear of the Lord, there's no wisdom. There's only folly. There is only folly. Keep that in mind when you turn on the television. Okay? How much wisdom are you going to get there? Very slim. Very slim. Yeah. So then God gives them over to wallow in the consequences of their empty mind. There's a lot of space up there to wallow around when your mind is empty. What they, what they imagined to be doing in their unsanctification, in fact, came true because God withheld, to, took away the restraints and He let them go down that path. You know, it would be very gracious for God to put in place a government over us that disallowed these evil things. Can you imagine if a, a tyrannical government came into place, but it was sort of nice and allowed Christians to worship, but no abortion, no gay marriage, you know, none of these other things. Done. Over with. That would be an interesting situation, wouldn't it? By the way, that's what government is for. You know that? To restrain evil. And to praise those who do well. But God doesn't always do that. He allows people by just re- releasing His hand of restraint from them, telling, instructing the Holy Spirit to stand aside, just allow the people to go this path. And that itself will be the consequence for their sin. Their chosen path of wickedness, ultimate destruction. They become idolaters, homosexuality, depraved sinners. The rest of the chapter I just summarized in those Six words, okay, or five or four, however many that was. The list of sins at the end of chapter uh, 1, verses 28 to 31. Theirs is the path of self-deception. Without guardrails, guardrails, the gracious intervention of God and salvation, that's a guardrail. Without the, the church, without the restraint of the Holy Spirit, those are gracious guardrails. They keep you from all kinds of terrible, terrible consequences. Without that, the world population would become the embodiment of pure evil. And I think the closest we'll get to that is the tribulation. The embodiment of pure evil. Related to the knowledge of God is the knowledge of right and wrong. In our conscience, look at verse 32. Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. They knew God's righteous decree that people who sin like the list before and and all the verses before in chapter 1, that they deserve death. That's tough for people to accept. They don't even accept the death penalty for first degree murder today in most states in our union. I don't know about the rest of the, the world. I think there are a lot of countries that dispatch a lot of people 
pretty quick for even lesser offenses. Thinking of China, for example, there's a lot of people that are simply disappeared over there. And uh, I don't think they keep them in uh, five-star hotels when they disappear them. But it's hard for people to understand that an offense against a perfectly holy God has as its penalty death. That is the truth of the Scriptures. And uh, got to think about that very, very carefully, very carefully. They deceive themselves individually and corporately that they can behave in these evil ways and even applaud those who do so or approve. But I use the word applaud just to kind of highlight the, the irony of it. As if that person that's doing that work is, is so, so right and good. But not the case. Uh, we used a, uh, an illustration last time just to kind of point out how this works. Um, about Mrs. Jones and her son who is a kleptomaniac. And the illustration was that Mrs. Jones's son was caught red-handed stealing money out of kids' lunchboxes at school, or, or desks rather. <clears throat> and Mrs. Jones, although this is the third time that this has happened, continues to protest her son's innocence. She um, is embarrassed about the, the subject of dishonesty and when this all comes up in casual conversation, she even knows that something is not right because she doesn't trust her son around her purse. And she continues to explain his innocence with fantastical explanations like, the school administration is against us. Uh, they framed him. And so on. Nobody in that case finds it objectionable to say poor Mrs. Jones is self-deceived. She knows the truth, but she convinces herself that she knows the opposite of the truth because it gives her some convenience in her mind to not have to deal with a son who is a reprobate and needs to be disciplined. I hope Mrs. Jones has a Mr. Jones and she could refer Sonny to Dad and Dad would have enough guts to take care of the problem. That's what our world needs, discipline. And teach kids that sin does have consequences uh, and to love them and show them the better way, the way of the Gospel of Christ. We looked at a couple of... Um, Texts that have to deal with uh, self-deception. We looked at last time also the idea of what self-deception is. That you know you you believe that X is true, but you have some motivation to deny that X is true. So what do you do with all the evidence that X is true? Well, you rationalize it away. You misconstrue it. You twist it. You ignore it. You discard it. You don't look at it. You know it's funny. People talk about uh, well, there's really no, uh, you know, there's no evidence in secular history for what happened in the Gospels and Jesus and the New Testament, all that. What they do is they drop their Bible in the trash can and then they say, I don't see any evidence. Well, of course, you just took the greatest source, 
documents and documents, pages and pages and pages in original Greek of the eyewitness testimony of people who were there. You throw it in the trash and then you say there's no evidence. That doesn't make any sense. But that's done all the time in secular uh, uh, philosophy and religion studies. So, you believe X is true, but you're motivated to deny it. You take the evidence that it is true and you twist it around so that it's plausible in your mind that it's false. And then you believe, you bring yourself to believe falsely that I don't believe X is true. But in fact, you do. And it may ever remain in that state until the day, the terrible day in which you stand before God and you realize all the cruft that you've built up, all the suppression of the truth and unrighteousness is immediately burned away by His holy vision. And you realize, I knew God existed all the time. And now I'm standing before Him. And now, I'm waiting for His sentence. And the conscience will know at that moment I don't even think God will have to say anything. I don't think so. Now, He will, maybe. In Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment tells us you'll be judged according to what's written in the books, the books of your works. And you will be cast into the lake of fire if your name is not found in the Lamb's book of life. That's what I'm saying. The suppression is only going to last so long. And then, like the rich man who is in torment... In the story in Luke, I think it's 16, about the rich man and Lazarus, he has no question about what the truth is. Go tell my brothers not to come to this awful place. He had enough concern and love in his heart still for those people, but it was too late because they have Moses and the prophets. They have Moses and the prophets in the New Testament. And if they dump that in the trash can, there is nothing else for them but the divine judgment. And so it's a fearful thing again, as we say, to fall into the hands of the living God. Self-deception is mentioned in Job 15. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 3.18. You can listen to the message on Wednesday for my report on those verses. It's also mentioned in your New Testament in Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6, and I think I won't spend too much time here because Jansen will be addressing this very soon, perhaps even Wednesday. Galatians 6, it says, verse 3, For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when in fact he is nothing, he deceives himself. So the fact is, we are nothing. We are servants of God. You know, if we get it through our thick skulls that we are unprofitable servants just doing what our duty is to do, like the Lord told the disciples in Luke's Gospel, we do we we advance quite far in spiritual things by realizing that I think um, we're not hot stuff we're not special God has called us to serve Him and however He calls to serve whether it's to you know to drive the chariot or to uh, to be the horse that pulls the chariot or or the guy who makes the wheels for the chariot or whatever that's just our job but we're just called to serve Him. We're not, we're not much. <clears throat> we're not big shots. We're mere flesh and blood. So to think that we are something big is to believe something that is false. Or in other words, 
It is to believe, when, when you're in this case here, deceiving yourself, it is to believe that we do not believe we're nothing. Okay? Do I got you all turned around with the negatives there? To believe that we are something is the opposite of to believe the truth that we are nothing. That is self-deception. Now, there's another group of texts that use this notion, and I'll just pick one of them. Um, let's go to Ephesians 5.5. 5. Um, this is in the family of texts, I'll call it, which, is, which also includes 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, and Galatians 5, 19 and 21 about the works of the flesh. And also Revelation 22. But look at, look at, let your eyes look at Ephesians 5, 5 for a second. It says, For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And the next verse, let no one deceive you with empty words, including yourself. Don't be deceived. It, this explains with utter certainty that people who live in the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. Utter certainty. They will not. Now listen. They will not see it. They will not enter it. They will not enjoy it. They will not experience it. They will not participate in it. But some people are antinomian in doctrine and believe that you can live however you please and be forgiven for it, not demonstrating any true transformation of grace. And Paul is saying, don't be deceived by this comforting thought that all will be well, that sin has no consequences. You know in your conscience that the assertion living in the flesh is okay is not okay. You know that is the case. But if you're self-deceived, you bring yourself to believe otherwise about that matter. Finally, one more verse and then we'll stop for tonight. 1 Corinthians 15. In the context of the doctrine of bodily resurrection, of Christ, first of all, and then of believers, Paul is saying that bad doctrine corrupts people. Do not be deceived... Evil company corrupts good habits, good morals, good, a good life. Bad doctrine corrupts good people. That's why we cannot tolerate it in the church. We cannot tolerate it in the church because we know that if we hang around a bunch of turkeys, we shouldn't be surprised if we start becoming like a turkey. Okay? In other words, subjecting yourself to teaching that denies the resurrection of Christ will make you short-circuit into believing something false. That, that's what self-deception is. It's a short-circuit caused by sin. You're thinking you can get away with it? Paul says, don't be deceived like that. You cannot get away with it. You cannot have a church in which you have people that believe in the resurrection and people that deny the resurrection or you believe some mystical, spiritualized, allegorical version of it. You can't have that. You can't put yourself into that place. You can't sit there and 
and listen to YouTube uh, pastors talking about their false doctrines and not have it affect you somehow, some way over the course of time. Evil company corrupts good habits, and we don't want that to be the case. So don't be deceived about that. So there are a number of texts of Scripture in this class that talk about, you know, don't be deceived, don't deceive yourself. If you do this, you're self-deceived. Um, and uh, there are actually two, two more that I've found, in addition to the Romans 1 passage where we spent most of our time this evening, for good reason, because it's kind of the key section of Scripture we still have some more to talk about. Where does self-deception come from? And uh, I'd like to use uh, some of the time in our next message to talk about some illustrations of it, contemporary illustrations of it, in which I probably get myself into hot water, but I don't care. So I'm just going to give it. And uh, yeah, you'll be. <laughs> that's right. It, it could it could be a, just a nice uh, just a nice hot tub, not really hot, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Amen. So, self-deception. Uh, don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Please, careful, be careful, be careful. It is uh, a, deadly, a deadly problem. And as the quote at the beginning said, the strange thing is people never know that they're self-deceived. They really don't until, until either it's too late or until somebody brings along the truth that knocks them into reality fixes the short circuit that's happening in their synapses. Uh, it's not just a problem with their physical brain, it's a problem with their spiritual brain, as it were. So, That's right. Yep. That's in Ephesians too, isn't it? <laughs> that's right. I know, I know. There's so much there, so much there in Scripture. We need to be, obviously, compassionate, towards people who are in this state because they just don't know that they don't know. You know what I mean? They're just lost. And there's no moral sense of moral superiority here. You know, we're just of the same exact nature. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. How great. Yeah, how great is that darkness? Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's in the Sermon on the Mount, I believe, isn't it? Yeah. If your eye is dark, oh, how dark you are. How dark your mind is. Yeah. And, and and you think about that that in terms of like a medical illustration. If somebody knows they have cancer, but they think they can deal with it in some kind of wrong way, and you just sit there and you just say, "Oh, you know, palm to the face." Why do you think that that is the way to treat it when there is a, a an array of treatments that are available that are proven to treat this whatever it is, you know. Uh, thyroid cancer or whatever. I mean, you know, if you took a naturalistic, a purely naturalistic approach, you know, you might not be here today, brother. And so it's like that. Sin is that kind of cancer. And people just are living like nothing. And you're just like, oh, you know, don't do that. It's a terrible idea. 
It's a terrible idea. So let's be compassionate, loving, and bold to speak the gospel. Ever more bold, my friends, because the sin of this world is becoming ever more bold day by day, and it's going to take an increased effort to stand against it. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you will bless our evening. Thank you for allowing us to be together and to listen to the word, the portions that we read and comments that we made about it. Oh, help us, Lord, not to be deceived. Protect us. Whatever thing, there may be some areas in our lives even right now that we're not too sharp on. We don't really get. I pray that you'd help us with those as time goes on. Thank you for these people. These are your people, your sheep, the sheep of your pasture. Lord, we commend each one to the word of your grace, your keeping power, and ask that you will bring us soon enough to that blameless state before the throne of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.